Good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, please. So good to see you all. Um, incredibly blessed that we get to gather together under God's holy word. And I'm going to see if I have water here, so mind me one second. Uh, Pastor Bill, would you grab a water just so I have it up here? My throat's a little dry this morning, so I apologize if my throat's not as... Um... Oh, thank you. Pardon me one second. It's like, it's like 75 in here or something. All right, well, pardon me, excuse me. Well, my name is Pastor Matt Vandervan. Nice to meet you. If this is your first time at Calvary Chapel, welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, you know, we go line by line and verse by verse through the entire Bible because God has told us it's the whole counsel of his word and it's perfect in all ways. Um, and we study it to understand exactly all that God has for us, so... Oh, I'm incredibly grateful for that, and thank you, Pastor Bill. And here we go. <laughs> so with that, let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll jump right into the Word. Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning that, uh, Lord, we pray that our worship this morning, not only our, our gifts, but, Lord, our voices, which are gifts from you, that we lift on high, Lord, was, was pleasing. Lord, it was pleasing this morning, our worship our hearts being fully surrendered here, Lord, the desire to come and learn more about you. And uh, Lord, we could spend the rest of our days, Lord, until you come, just studying your word, just meeting with you, just enjoying that koinonia, Lord, that fellowship that you have for us. How beautiful and sweet it is, Lord God. We thank you for the privilege, God, to be able to do that. And, and Lord, we pray that your presence, Lord, would clearly be manifest in us, through us, and with us today. And, Lord, I pray that your word would go forward and stir the hearts and minds, Lord, that we would we'd begin to think about the things that your spirit has to say. Lord, we pray that it would not fall on rocky ground and soil, but, Lord, fertile, beautiful, rich soil, Lord. Humble soil, God, where it will take root and produce fruit that's 30, 60, and 100 fold, Lord, for your kingdom, for your glory, always, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've come as far as verse 14 in Romans chapter 9. Paul's brought us to this interesting point. We've begun to look at um, really his foreknowledge as he spoke about in verse 29, knowing what would be and has been. and Clearly, he's the one that calls, and I asked you to read ahead. How many of you actually read ahead? Don't raise your hands, but I pray that the, all of your hands would have been up and that you would have read ahead, um, that we, as we've talked about before, our job is to come prepared. We're to, come to, we're to be intentional. We're to read ahead like that to see what the Lord is stirring our hearts. And then it's so cool when the Holy Spirit goes forward, and it's like, oh, yeah, he showed me that. And, man, there's just this beautiful, or maybe he showed you something different that's pressing for you this morning. But, but as we go through this, Paul was going through and helping them understand election. Maybe not in the way that philosopher, you know, philosophers or men have chose to use the word election, but God's definition for election, God's de definition for the choosing or the calling of the saints. After all, he said, come follow after me. 
But then he's going to explain here, as we begin to read in verses 14 on, that, that while he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, right? And shows favor to whom he chooses to show favor. And again, this isn't a New Covenant, New Testament teaching, right? We can go back and see he's the Ancient of Days. It's Sometimes I've, I've heard people say, well, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And I, I sometimes... I don't know if I, if my head turns or if I kind of have a puzzled look. What do you mean by that? God. He's, he's the ancient of days. There is no different God. He's God. And, and as I read this, it's beautiful. And that's what, that's what I love about studying the entire counsel of God. All 66 books is it just continues to show us the harmony of his spirit, the harmony of his love. You know, he's a good God. He's a good father. And so as we read here, he's going to explain the difference of mercy here. But please remember one thing, very, very important understanding this text. Fairness is not mercy. Righteousness is based on fairness. Do you, do you understand that? God took a vow. Vows are important. You know, can, can you imagine if God, especially with the people of Israel, said, well, you know, especially after they followed after things in their own eyes, you know, maybe I don't love you anymore, Israel. This people group looks more attractive to me. That's foreign to unconditional love and agape love. That's fleshly. That reeks of flesh. Nothing about that has anything to do with God. God's a promise keeper. Not because he just has to, but because it's his nature to be a God of love, a covenant keeper. But he explains that in righteousness, he was to, to tr be fair. Well, in fairness, what did Israel, and, and dare I say, what do we deserve? Well, I know I deserve hell. I know I deserve hell. The Bible tells me that even in my righteousness, Isaiah, that what? It's filthy rags. It's filthy rags. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. I love this passage. He gives me what I don't deserve. He gave all of us a system of grace. We don't deserve it. So when we read through this, please understand that is the context because verse, uh, chapters 9 through 12, or really 9 through 11, Paul is talking really to those Romans and also believing Jews at this time in Rome about the hope that awaits, but why? It's not that God forgot Israel. You know, why did they not believe? Why are they rejecting Messiah? It's not that they're forgotten. We don't stop praying for Israel today, do we? No, we're to be praying for Israel. Because as we get to chapter 11, God will explain it's not over yet. They're his chosen people. And he has never forsaken them nor forgotten them. Isn't that wonderful? Our God doesn't forget us. Our God doesn't change his mind. Our God isn't swayed by emotions and lust and flesh and all that everything else that goes with it that reeks from the pit of hell. Our God is a God of love. He is wonderful. And so as we read here this morning, just let that just sink in and transform and set you free. As he was speaking to a nation that he so desperately even said in, in the beginning chapter of 9, that he would even be willing to give up his salvation if it meant the nation of Israel would be saved. Unconditional love. What shall we say then? 
Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will compassion, quoting Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And as I mentioned, mercy and fairness are different, aren't they? Mercy is getting what we don't deserve. So then it is not of him who wills. This is important. He's explaining it. Who's him who wills? That's you and I. It's not, it's not our will be done. It's not him who wills, nor of him who runs. What is the running? That explains works. It's not of him who runs to something that jumps into action. So it's not one who simply thinks about it, my will, or begins to try to live it out through action, works-based. But of God who shows mercy, it has nothing to do with us. It's his love. It's his gift. And we get to receive it. That's what makes it a gift. We didn't earn it. We can never earn it. But he's a God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. That's in the book of Exodus, if you remember with the 10 plagues. What we read there is God allows both good and evil. He allows it sometimes. And why? Well, even when evil is being propagated, ultimately God knows that that evil will be judged. But for a time being, he allows it to do what? So that he can declare his, or should I say even the person by not declaring his glory, God's glory is declared because there is one that is righteous. There is one. Moses, right? He was a murderer. It was not the man himself that was better than any other men. But anybody that's willing to follow after God and acknowledge, here I am, Lord, use me. I'm unqualified. You know, I'm, who am I? Well, let's get our eyes off us. Who are you? The God of the universe who can do anything and everything. That's where the power is. He says it. That's where it'll be declared. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus gave us a beautiful parable to help us understand this idea of what Paul is really explaining to Israel. When I say Israel, to those Jews that may be hearing this in Rome, as God's chosen people, remember, they were identified nationalistically by the law, which was what? A law of works, isn't it? And the law could certainly never save, as we've already been reading in the book of Romans. Look at Matthew chapter 22. He's going to explain that there's this wedding feast and that it was intended for a group of people to come. But they knew better. They decided that they weren't going to come and so what did God do? He goes out on the byways and highways and he invites all those that will come in. You know who that is? You and I. Gentile believers, non Jews in origin to come in and to sup with him. He says in verse 1, and Jesus answered and spoke to them. Well, what was he answering? We'll go back to verse 23 of chapter 21 for that. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? 
That's what he was dealing with. He was answering that question, but more pertinent here, he's giving them an example. He began to speak in parables because he knew the hardness of their hearts, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, and they were caught up in religion and not relationship. And so he begins to say, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. That's exactly what God the Father did with Israel. He betrothed them. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited into the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Israel. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, the fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. What did Jesus say when he came? The kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is at hand. He spoke that. Come to the wedding. You see, God uses the illustration of marriage as a covenant, as a, as a promise. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And how he's adorning us. Psalm, there's a psalm, I um, can't remember if it's Psalm 118 or what Psalm tells us. We just read it this last week. I just read it this last week with a, a leadership group in, in regards to marriage and strength in marriage. How he, he desires to, you know, clothe us with robes of righteousness, beautiful and pure, white robes. Well, but they made light of it and went their way and, and one to his own farm and another to his own business. It was all about them. It was all about their business. It was all about what they were self-seeking or interested in. And isn't that like when Jesus Christ came and he came and he would open the scrolls of Isaiah as he would walk into the synagogues and they would all testify of who he was and his truth, his love, and what God's intention was to redeem a lost and dying world. And their response was to murder him. Their response was hatred. Isn't it odd when you tell somebody you love them and they look at you and you show them kindness and they say, I hate you? Have you ever had any somebody do that? Especially when you're, you're walking out Christ in your life. Remember, they're not hating you. Jesus Christ is an offense. They're hating him who sent you. Well, he says, and the rest seized, well, let's back up. And he made light of it, and they went on the ways to their own farm, to those, to their business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, it was fierce. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up the city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Who in this parable is he talking about that they were sent to tell them to come? The prophets. You have the minor and major prophets in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You know, Wednesdays, we're studying right now in the book of Numbers, line by line, verse by verse. Do you know how many Christians don't know the Old Testament? Friends, if you're not coming out on a Wednesday to join us to go, it's, it's important. It's not just about the New Testament. It's the entire counsel of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 
Because Jesus came and he was trying to relate to them about what the law and the prophets had prophesied that would come and they didn't see it. Either because of the hardness of their heart or because simply they weren't studying the scriptures themselves. They weren't pouring over them. That's, that's, a, that's a warning for me. Am I about my word? Am I letting the word transform my heart? Am I, am I spending time with my God? Am I being seasoned and salted with the word of Christ? He sent out his armies and he destroyed those murderers and he burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and find as many as you, or, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all. All were invited. Every Gentile whom they found both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled. Is that fair? No, that's mercy. Do you see the difference there? God could have just closed up shop, man, and said, you know what? I'll find a different people group and they'll be my chosen people. But he didn't. God's a promise keeper. Not only that, but he had also prophesied that Abraham, to Abraham and through the Abrahamic covenant that one day you and I would come into the covenant. We would be adopted sons and daughters, heirs and co-heirs. It was prophetic. It was promised. And as you look around, it's, it's fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled until the last Gentile comes in. And then whoosh, the harpazo, we're out of here, man. We're out of here, the rapture. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him not of darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he talking about? Those that reject. Those that reject the king of the feast, of the wedding feast, but choose to come in because they want to partake but they don't want relationship. They just want free food, man. You get it? I'll turn back to Romans. So that, that makes sense in that context. And, you know, if you look, Paul's trying to warn us. He's trying to say, but this was always, this is not something new. This was always prophesied. This isn't a new idea. I mean, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 tells, I'm turning there for a moment. He says, but indeed for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Who was he talking to? The Hebrews. It was during the seventh plague. God was speaking to the Hebrews. They were a chosen people that his name could be declared. That was the whole point. And if they weren't going to do that, God would raise up another. That would be mercy. He didn't destroy everyone, did he? He left a remnant. And he's continually the remnant, right? So let's, let's continue on. So he says, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you. There he is. Even in Pharaoh, by Pharaoh doing what? Pharaoh began to harden his heart. And then after a while, what happened? God gave him over to his will and hardened his heart. It wasn't that Pharaoh decided, or God, excuse me, decided, well, Pharaoh, you're just going to be a hard-hearted guy, man. 
No, God gives every opportunity, free will, grace, love, mercy, kindness. But it's like we read in Romans chapter, you can turn right in the back, back to Romans chapter one and look what it says. Right around verse 24. We read this, but, but remember, these, these things are all very relevant for today. We're living in the last days. He said, therefore, God also gave them up to unclean. He gave them up. That means that was their desire. God finally said, I, look, you've seared the Holy Spirit. You keep kicking back against the goads. You, no, you don't want me. You reject me. And God's a gentleman. Jesus is a gentleman. He, he pursues, but he doesn't, he doesn't Bible thump. He says, okay, if, that's, if, that, if, if really this is what you want, he says, I'll leave you to your own doing. I think about what he said that to Saul in the Old Testament, the first king, right? Think about that. Saul thought he, what he was doing was right. First Samuel, you look at, he thought he was doing it right. Well, you know what? I, you know, I, the prophet Samuel's not here yet. I'm just going to sacrifice myself unto God. I'm going to assume the role of a priest, which he was not called to do. I'm just going to do it and, and we're going to go into battle and God will just bless it. What? That's not how God works. God's a God of decency and order. It's, it's all through the scripture. He says, therefore, there, God also gave them up to uncleanness. And isn't that what he did to Saul when he took his spirit from Saul? So much that Saul was then so discontent that David came and would have to play for him just, that, just to calm his, his soul. Have, have you had that in your life where you're striving and leaning on your own understanding, you're acknowledging things that look and feel right to you and yet are in direct opposition of God and you think somehow it's going to end well? Friends, it doesn't end well. It didn't end well for Israel. It will, because there'll be his redeemed people, Jeremiah 31, 31. But it didn't end as they rejected the covenant promise. And it doesn't end well for us. If we think we can somehow teeter-totter through life, one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, and somehow balance it. No. Better to deny our own emotions in flesh. Even if we have a change of heart. Wow, this, I see things differently now. Do you? Where do you get your supposition? Where do you get your knowledge? Where's your wisdom coming from? Is it, is it from our intellect? Or is it from the word of God? If it's from the word of God, I assure you and promise you, God will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will be with you every step of the way. But if you go and do what's right in your own eyes, well, you're, you, it's not that God leaves you, but you're going it alone. And he's going to allow a brokenness. He's going to allow a point of correction. And, and, and sin, as we just read on Wednesday in Numbers, sin doesn't just hurt us. Sin affects everybody else around us. Well, that's why Paul's warning them. He's like, guys, Israel, nation, pay attention. You rejected Messiah. 
And he says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and lust of their hearts, dishonored their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. You see that definite article, the lie. That means what lies being whispered to you? Because there is an enemy, and I assure you, he's whispering lies into your mind and your heart. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Let's serve the works of God, not the God of the works. Who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged their natural use for what's talking about lesbianism, homosexuality here. This is what happens when man does what's right in his own eyes. This is what happens when woman does what's right in their own eyes. You see what's produced, the fruit. We just talked about 30, 60, and 100. The fruit that's produced from this, when we do what's right in our own eyes. God, protect us. Protect us from ourselves, amen. Lord, protect us. Likewise, the men leaving their natural use of the woman burn their lust one for another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty of their error which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are Whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't know if you caught the, um, the news. I'm going to give me a moment for a tangent here. And then we'll jump back into our word again. Um, but some of you know there was a tennis player, Maria Navratilova, if I say the name right. Forgive me if I mispronounce it. Many years ago, um, I can remember going and watching her play. I think she won Wimbledon nine times. Quite, a, quite an outstanding athlete. She came out uh, and said she was homosexual. She was a lesbian. And she began to champion the gay rights movement. And she became a leader in the gay rights movement. Well, years and years have gone by, and now the LBD, you know, the acronym there, LBGTQMLPWIZ, you know, group has now come out and said, well, you know, because we have gender and transgender going on, we should allow um, men that believe they're females to compete in athletics. Because where does the line ever get drawn? Well, the committee's looking at that, and she goes back and she tweets and said, no way, I'm paraphrasing. She said it would be an unfair advantage to allow a male to compete in a female athletic activity. Which you can imagine, all of the transgender jumped on top of her and said, what are you saying? Are you saying that even though she thinks she's a woman, there's no, that she really hormonally and biologically is a male? Well, wait a minute. Well, she says, you know what? I'm going to remove the tweet. I'll come back and let me, um, let, me, let me ponder this for a little while. Well, just last month, in the Times in London, one of the more popular media outlets there, 
she writes a column or she's quoted in a column saying, you know, I've pondered this. I've thought about this and I've, I've come back. And she said, you know, what I, where I've ended up is, is that absolutely someone who does this is cheating. Someone who does this is not, uh, not being, you know, walking with integrity. Well, you can imagine all the folks that jumped on, the transgender folks, they consumed their own. Sin begets sin. And they turned on her. They removed her as one of the leaders of these, you know, of the homosexual movement and everything. Why? Because even now she's outdated. To them, she's conservative. And she goes on to say, but the science proves it. That unless a boy speaking of a man commuting in a woman, unless a boy has a transgender uh, hormone, hormone supplement operation, all that stuff, before they even go into puberty, biologically talking with doctors and scientists, the bone structure and the anatomy of a man is far different. And even after changing hormones, the amount of red blood cells and hemoglobin that men have compared to women is vastly different. And by Changing that even after puberty, it would be too late. It's still an unfair advantage for the man because a man, no matter if he thinks he's a woman or not, is still a biological man. Well, we all get this, right? We're, this isn't news to us. But what's happening is it's, it's no longer just about a fight of consuming, you know, the conservative, the Bible believer versus a worldview now. They're infighting, and they're consuming themselves. You see, that's what's going to happen. They're given over to a debased mind. They're going to push and push until they consume one another. And isn't that what Antichrist is going to do? Antichrist is going to use a worldwide religion until they're no longer any usefulness to them, and then they'll all be murdered. We're living in the last days. We're watching these things happen. Now you're saying, well, how did we get off on this? Because God allowed that woman to do that, that you and I, even others that may be unbelievers, are watching and seeing this. And it's bringing glory back to the word of God that when God says homosexuality is a sin and that sin consumes sin or sin begets sin, it's exactly what he said. And we looked at him and go, God, you said it would be like this, that they would be given over to debased minds and that they would do these things. Why am I making such a big deal? Because Paul's argument through all of chapter nine and honestly part of chapter 10 is all about why Israel have you rejected the word? I would say why Christian have many Christians rejected the word today? Because when we get away from the word, he says hearing, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing, by the word of God. It's by the word of God. He's trying to warn not only that generation, but the Holy Spirit uses this for every other generation to come. We're living in the last days. We need to get our perspective from God's word. We can't trust our own intellect. We can't trust our own emotions. We can't, certainly can't trust what the world is serving up on a platter. It's mental insanity. Let's define it for what it is. Let's call it what it is. It is a D-based mind. 
It's mental insanity that when we think if we do something different, that we're going to end up with a different result than what we see throughout all of the scriptures when we don't walk in the will of God. So let's continue here. He says, therefore, he who has mercy on him who wills, verse 18, whom wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? He begins to say, how dare you question God? There's a sovereignty here. He's not your pal. He's God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Isn't that what we're seeing in this whole transgender and gender argument today? Oh God, why have you made me a male, but I'm supposed to be a female? No, biologically you're male and you're meant to be a male. Anything else is mental insanity. We can help you. Don't run away from God. Run to him. God can heal the broken heart. He can right the wrong. And it's not that we don't love. We do love. We are to love. We don't ignore someone that's struggling with that and say, oh, we don't, we don't want nothing to do with it. No, we love them. We love them right to Jesus. Why have you made me like this? I think a sovereignty, reverence, submission, and humility, all that needs to be part of that. But does not the potter have the power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another to dishonor? He does that without violating free will. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He says, what if? It's really not a what if. He does. Why does he allow it? We already read it earlier. That I've raised you up that I may show, verse 17, my power in you that my name may declare it in all the earth. That's why he allows it. Exodus chapter 18, verse 52. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. Both times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What if, isn't that interesting, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, remember, he called all of us, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. He's restating that. Also, as it says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, this is what he's quoting. I will call them my people who were not my people. He's speaking of Israel. And her beloved, or beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in this place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Do you remember Hosea had a had son and one of his sons was low am I? Or low am I? Or low am I? Depending on how you want to pronounce it. What's that mean? I'm, I'm screwing it up in the Hebrew. It means not my people. That's what it means, right? I screw up the English, let alone the Hebrew. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Praise Jesus. There's a promise to restore. But he reminds them for where they came from that they weren't a people, but they've been made a people and God has a plan for them. God didn't forget his chosen people, Israel. He's just allowing them to follow their own will, but there'll be a time when he gives them a new heart. 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel in really Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut, out, cut it out short, cut it short in righteousness, because the word will make a short work upon the earth. What's he talking about? When he wrote that, that specific area in Isaiah chapter 10, he was speaking to the Assyrians, right? Well, not the Assyrians. He was speaking to Israel, who would soon be consumed in the Assyrian battle, the destruction in, in 722 BC, the Assyrian invasion. Because of why? Because the northern tribes had done what? They had gone and began to practice pagan idolatry. They looked more like the world than they did God's chosen people. That, that's what he's, he's sharing here. And then he also is going to quote Isaiah, really 1-9, and he's going to, and, and that, that's speaking to the southern tribe. Who's the southern tribe? Judah. He's speaking to Judah, and he's going to say, even in the Babylonian invasion, hey, this is going to come. This is going to happen. God prophetically was not only warning them, but he was saying, this is the destruction that awaits you when you don't walk in my word. I, I pray that an unbeliever today, I pray that a Jew, someone hears this, and the, 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 the scales fall from the eyes, and they begin to be set free. I pray this for a believer that has been walking contrary to the will of God for this, this morning. This isn't to, to beat anybody down. This word liberates. This word sets free. And as Isaiah said before, chapter 1, verse 9, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, he's speaking again of a remnant, we would have become like Sodom. He's saying it could have been a whole lot worse, by the way, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed. They began homosexuality, practicing that. They even turned around and consumed themselves with sin. And God destroyed and judged, righteously judged the wickedness. And when Christ comes again, he's coming as a righteous judge. We need to repent. We need to turn to God. Well, what shall we say then, Paul adds? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? He said, what happened here? He said, the Jews who had the law, God's chosen people who had the prophets, the entire word of God, he said, he says, how is it that the Gentiles who believed without all this understanding, without understanding all of this, how did they come into salvation? And he said, they believe by faith. It's just the same thing that was accounted to Abraham by righteous, for righteousness, right? It was faith. It's always been faith. It's not a new, a new teaching. Oh, no. Thank you, Jesus. You're the ancient of days. It's always been about faith. A system of grace. He says that have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness to, of faith. It was found outside the law. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Why is that? Because no one fulfilled the law but Jesus Christ. And that's why he's the only one that's able and willing. Look, you may have a lot of friends, but your friends can't save you. 
Your friends could even go to the cross and be crucified. But they have a sin nature before they accepted Jesus Christ. No one but Messiah could have saved us. He who was outside of creation came into creation to set the captives free for those that would call on the name of Jesus Christ and believe and be saved and have newness of life. Why did Israel reject Messiah? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. It's the same thing we see today. Many denominations, many religions out there are still setting up works-based mentalities of religion. And none of them draw you closer to Christ. They might keep you busy. But since when does that have anything to do with relationship? For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Ah, this is powerful. You know, with our remaining time, we're going to finish up here, chapter 9. We're going to stop here today. But I'd like to spend our remaining time looking through what this idea of a stumbling stone is. Let's, let's read the first passage in verse 33 here. It says, as it's written, quoting Isaiah, right? Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone in the rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Seems simple enough. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Again, is this a new covenant idea? Did God actually prophesy thousands of years ago that when he sent Messiah, that he would be a stumbling stone and that Israel would respond that way? And is it still in the word of God and in the Torah so that they could read this and see today that this was all prophesied and that God still has a plan of redemption if they would welcome them into their hearts, he would save them and complete them. Look at Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What's a chief cornerstone or what's a cornerstone? A cornerstone is used to align something, isn't it? What do you think Jesus was aligning us with? Not only with his word, but his plan for salvation. What do you think he was trying to align Israel with? Not that the law could save, but faith in Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And if you align that cornerstone correctly, the foundation has been set. And everything is built upon it. He was pointing it, he was pointing it out to them. Anybody that's got a building uh, background or a construction background, I mean, this should be speaking to your heart. This is, a, this is elementary in an envelope or a foundation or a footer. I mean, a chief cornerstone. He's, he's telling us what, what, it's all foundational. He was, he was trying to help them. This, this was the Lord's doing, it actually says. Do you see that? This was the Lord's doing, much like Pharaoh who hardened the heart. It's marvelous in our eyes This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And then what does he say right after that in verse 25? That's where we get Asa'ana, right, in the Hebrew. Or what do we say? Hosanna. But but Asa'ana, what what does that mean? It means save now. As Jesus was making his triumphal entry into 
Jerusalem. What were they crying out? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the Hebrew. They were crying out, right? Why? Save now. They recognized him as the King of kings and the Lords of Lords, Messiah. Save now. They understood this. They quoted this very passage. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all heard it. Because they were angry. It says, why do you get the people uprising like this? And what does he say? He says, if they didn't do that, these very stones would cry out. Did he not say that? He says, these very stones. He says, there's no way you could deny it. There's no way you could deny it. Why was he pointing them back to Psalm 118? Save now. He was showing them, I'm that cornerstone that was prophesied. Receive me that you might be saved. He didn't do this in secret. This mystery was revealed. And Paul's going to talk more about that. Look, look also in your Bibles at um, Isaiah chapter 8. Turn to Isaiah. A few books to your right there. Well, a number of books to your right. Isaiah chapter 8. Look at, look at verse 14. And again, this is when Isaiah was talking about the Assyrian invasion and what would be coming predominantly to the northern tribes, right? The 11 there, or the 10, excuse me, I meant to say. The northern tribes like that. Look at verse 14. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What do we often say today? Jesus is an offense to many, right? To both the house of Israel... He says, actually, to both houses of Israel. What's he speaking of? Judah and, obviously, the northern and southern tribes. To both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. He says, bind up this testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord. You see, he was telling them, this is coming. This is what they were to be looking for. It it should have been like neon. You know, when they started to reject him and want to murder him, some of the high high priests and some of the religious leaders, the Jews should have looked and said, this was prophesied. It wasn't that what they expected Messiah to come and establish his earthly kingdom the way that he thought they would overthrow Rome because of the oppression. And Israel had always been under oppression, really, since the, you know, 722 B.C., and then, and then thereafter, really, from, on, from that time on, he, they're under some type of control of someone, whether it's Assyria or eventually Babylon, or even in the intertestamental period, the silent times, Antiochus Epiphanes, right, comes in, desolates the temple, and then thereafter Christ comes, but who's under, whose uh, oppression are they under then? Rome. They were under oppression. It, 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 was, it was not that Christ was going to come to establish the kingdom the way they thought initially because they thought, well, he was going to overthrow Rome and they were going to crown him king, John chapter 6. But what was he saying here? He's saying, this is what you look like. This is what you're to look for when Messiah comes. The, the, many are not going to believe. Many are actually not going to believe. It's going to be a rock of offense. They should have said, but this was prophesied. Isaiah said this would happen. And, and this is what Paul is making very clear to them that, that and in chapter 10 especially, he's going to really bring that out in verses 15 and on through 20. He's going to say, but they ignored my scripture. They ignored my word. They didn't know. 
Friends, why is this important to us today? Because there are people walking around that are ignoring the word of God in the scripture on the days we're living. They don't know how close we are. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming soon. But there are so many today that are ignorant because they don't know the Bible. And you know what? We have the greatest privilege of all. We get to tell them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. Look at verse 16. A cornerstone in Zion. Could be any, you know. <laughs> Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Look at that. Huh. That's incredibly powerful. Turn to Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. What about when Jesus Christ was physically manifested on the earth? Did he give a testimony right before them, specifically when his authority was being questioned? We just read, I just had brought us to Matthew chapter 22, if you remember. So now I'm back up a couple of verses. Context is the same. They're questioning Jesus' authority, right? They're questioning how he does the things he's doing. Look at verse 42. What does he say? Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? Isn't that interesting? Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in his eyes, in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And, and for a moment, and we don't want to be too hard on the Pharisees, right, or the, you know, the, the scribes that matter, but for one moment, they get it, Right? Look at verse 45, I think it is. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. So it's not a misunderstanding. It's not a matter of, well, they weren't tracking. Oh no, they were tracking. What is that, what is that called when Scripture clearly says, this is the will of God, and you follow something contrary to that? You're doing what's right in your own eyes. You're not following the will of God. It's never been about a lack of knowledge, friends. It never has. It's a battle of wills. It's either going to be his will or your will be done. And that's why he told us, pray, his will be done. And because of that, we'll conclude with 1 Peter 2.7. And once again, to the church. He writes this to even to the church, right? First Peter 2 7. He wants to remind them and encourage them. 
because I imagine as they were being martyred and many of them losing friends and loved ones, maybe children, spouses, different things like that, maybe they began to doubt. You know, did we get this right? Well, what's he say to them in First Peter chapter 2, verse 7? Really, you can back up to 6. He requotes Isaiah again. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. He points him back to the word again, the Torah. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes in him by no means will be put to shame. Isn't that the truth? Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Those who believe on the name of Christ, he is so precious to us. Isn't he? We love him. He's everything to us. He says he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stumbling on a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Peter's pointing this out, that they've rejected the word. But then he reminds us who we are and what our role is in this. We're going to read this and then we're going to stand and pray and ask for God to give us boldness this morning. Because he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar, as I like to use the word from the King James in the Textus Receptus, but as you read in your Bible, a precious, right? A precious what? A special people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might, what? Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God who have obtained, there it is again, what was it? Mercy. He will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy on. He will show favor unto whom he shows favor, but have now obtained that mercy. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Don't you love how God strings those pearls? There is so much richness in his word. We could spend all our lives studying the richness and the fabric of what God has given us. And we still would only understand a fraction of his love and his promises for us. Father, we, we thank you, Jesus. As we've just studied your word, we've come here to meet with you. Lord God, you've encouraged me. I, Lord, as I'm sitting up here and you took us in um, different directions, Lord, and and, and, and beautiful places in your word, jewels, God, you've given, revealed uh, just pearls to babes. Lord, thank you that you are so faithful to your children. To those that seek, Lord, you said we would find. Lord, we found a lot this morning. So much treasure that you've given us. God, may we take this treasure and be faithful to pass it on to others. Not hoard it to ourselves, Lord. We're not treasure collectors. We're disciple makers. God, we pray right now, Lord, for boldness. God, that you would give us a supernatural uh, filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would baptize us anew, that we we would be immersed, Lord, in that anointing oil through your Holy Spirit. And that, Lord, you would manifest the gifts in us 
specifically boldness, Lord, and discernment to know when to speak and to know when to share your word. God, I pray you move on the hearts of your family here this morning. Lord, I pray that you begin a revival through this area, Lord. Lord, that every single person in the Harrisburg proper area, Lord, I pray the whole world would come unto salvation, Jesus. But Lord, in our Jerusalem here, I pray, God, you would work mightily to show this truth. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Israel. Lord God, they're, Lord, they, they're not maybe reading the scripture or maybe they haven't seen. Lord Jesus, you've used so many to be faithful to make Aliyah, to go back, Lord. To, and while they're there, Lord Jesus, I pray you would, Lord, even send us, one of us, all of us, Lord, for a time such as this, for today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would protect God, your chosen people. You'd bless them, Lord. And I pray they would call out on you, Messiah. They would call out on you, Jesus. And that they would see all that you have. They would taste and see just how marvelous you are, God. Just how wonderful you are. How you are the fulfillment of all the promises that we find in the entire counsel of the word of, the word of God. It all points to you, Jesus, and your love. And God, I pray that you would bless your people here, Lord Jesus, that you would keep them, that you would make your face to shine upon them, Lord. Continue to be gracious to them, God. You are so gracious and full of mercy, Lord. I pray you lift your countenance upon them. Lord, that you would give them a perfect peace. Write your name on them, Lord. They are blood-bought. That, Lord Jesus, they could never, ever, ever walk out of your perfect love, mercy, and grace, of your covering. Lord, I pray and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. Have a beautiful day. I love you all, and I'll see you on Wednesday as the Lord should lead. Please come out for midweek study. It's a beautiful time in the Old Testament.